just a couple of verses and shine the sermonic spotlight there. Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. I want to preach today with the help of the Holy Spirit, and I do solicit your prayers from the subject, tearing down walls and building bridges. Tearing down walls and building bridges. Prejudice is a worldwide problem with many reasons for its existence. Let's examine just several of those reasons. First, prejudice exists because people are different. People differ in nationality, color, beliefs, religion, speech, looks, behavior, Energy, position, status, social standing, possessions, wealth, birth, and heritage. Prejudice rears its ugly head when certain people feel as though their differences or their difference makes them better than others. Second, mistreatment is often used as a springboard for prejudice, both mistreating others and being mistreated. When a person mistreats others or is mistreated by others, his or her human nature is immediately aroused to become prejudicial and judgmental. The mistreatment that often gives rise to prejudice covers a range of behaviors such as ignoring, neglecting, joking, gossiping, unjustified opposition, fighting against, cursing, abusing, persecuting, passing over, segregation, or enslavement. Third, and most worthy, prejudice is a sin problem more than it is a skin problem. Those who harbor and practice prejudice, bigotry, racial hate, and intolerance are, according to the biblical text now, outside of the will of God and have willfully driven a wedge between themselves and Jesus, which constitutes sin. Now, in today's scripture text, Peter, that apostle of Jesus, is given an assignment by God to tear down the generational wall of racial prejudice, which existed between 
the Jews and the Gentiles and to build a bridge so that Jews and Gentiles could come together. And first and foremost, so that all people could get to God. Now, biblical and secular history reveals that Jewish people, like all other people groups, had developed their own laws and customs. And every Jewish child was born and reared in the strict environment of those laws and those customs. They, like all other people, were steeped in their own nationality and looked upon other people with suspicion. However, there were two factors which made the Jewish prejudice run more deeper than most. First, Jewish people had a long history of being mistreated, enslaved, and persecuted. And through the centuries, they had been conquered by army after army. By the millions, they had been deported and, and scattered all over the world. And even in the day of Jesus, they were enslaved to Rome. Many saw their religious practices as the binding force that kept them together as a nation. Therefore, they were vehemently opposed to anyone or anything that threatened to break the laws of their religion as well as their nation. Are you listening to me? The second factor was the Jewish people uh, misread Jewish people misread, misinterpreted, and in some cases outright rebelled against the word of God and the will of God. In Genesis chapter 12, God called Abram, promised to make him a great nation, blessed him and gave him countless descendants for one purpose. The purpose was for his descendants, the Hebrew people, to be his witnesses and missionaries to the rest of the world. That's why he gave him so many descendants. Not so he could boast about how many children he had, but so that his witnesses would become, his people rather, would become witnesses and missionaries to the entire world. God gave his word to his people and instructed them to take his whole word to the whole world. They were to bear witness that God, that Yahweh, that Elohim was the one and only true God, the living God. Uh, he was their deliverer, their savior, and that all humanity was to worship him and him alone. That's what they were supposed to be doing. It was here that Israel failed miserably. Instead of proclaiming God's word to the different people groups around them, they separated themselves and hoarded God's uh, blessings and sought to make God exclusively their own. They became separatist. They became prejudiced. They became racist and internationally built barriers, partitions, walls between them and all other people's group, whom, by the way, they derogatively 
referred to as Gentiles. Uh, they, they called Gentiles dogs. They would have no contact with a Gentile unless absolutely necessary. And, and then after the contact was made, they went through a long religious ceremony to clean themselves, to cleanse themselves from the touch. In other words, if they touched a Gentile, a non-Jew, they had to go through a ceremony of cleansing in order to make themselves right, at least in their minds, with God again. It was so bad, and the racism and Hatred had gone so deep until they would not even help a Gentile woman who was giving birth, lest in their minds another Gentile would be born into the world. It was into such a world. It was in such, into such a world, such a messed up world, such a racist world, such a bigoted world that Jesus launched his church church that was and still is to proclaim the message as well as model the message of tearing down the walls of racism, bigotry, and hatred while at the same time building bridges of peaceful reconciliation between all people groups. That's what the church was intended and is intended to do. In fact, that's what today's scripture text is all about. And let me, let me just insert something here. If there is any place where the world should see the walls of racism down and, and bridges being built between people, it ought to be in the church. So that's what our text is all about. Acts 10 verses 1 through 8 informs us that there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. He was a centurion of the band called the Italian army. That means Cornelius was a soldier in the Roman army in command of 100 men. Centurions were known in Cornelius' day as being the backbone of the army. When I was in the Air Force, that's what we were taught as, as chaplains, and that's what we were taught as, as officers that, that, that the enlisted troops, the, the non-commissioned officers, those who had paid their dues and had come up the ranks at one stripe at a time, we were taught that they were the backbone of the Air Force. That's what we were taught. And wise officers understood that concept as they related and interrelated with, with the enlisted personnel. But not only was Cornelius a good soldier, he was a devout man. He was a religious man who feared God and, and led his family members to fear God. And in addition, he gave help to the poor and he had an, an active prayer life. And so one day, the Bible tells us, at the ninth hour, about the ninth hour, he saw clearly an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. God is at work, y'all. About the ninth hour, he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. The ninth hour of the day was three o'clock in the afternoon. 
Now, whenever the use of time is inserted in scripture, we should look for symbolism or specific times that points to specific occurrences. For example, the ninth hour was the very hour Jesus had been crucified. That's why Luke slipped it in there. You know, people, people would see that in his day and understand that the ninth hour had significance. Immediately the disciples of Jesus would understand the ninth hour. It's the ninth hour that he said that the shed blood of Jesus was the only source of power that could defeat racism, bigotry, and separatism. Second, the ninth hour was the time of the evening sacrifice, the Jewish evening sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed his life so that the world could be brought into a love relationship with himself and each other. And then third, don't miss this, the ninth hour was the time of public prayer in the temple. For you see, prayer was the key. Cornelius, the Bible said, had been praying. And God had heard his prayer and was about to move in miraculous, mysterious, and marvelous ways to tear down walls and build bridges. Cornelius was praying because he knew something was missing in his life. A footnote. When you look around at the condition of our nation and our world and see racism and bigotry and hatred and separation, don't you dare for one moment to allow Satan to discourage you. Don't you dare allow him to make you angry, to make you bitter, and to make you suspicious of people who are of different races, different cultures, and even different nationalities. Because he'll do it if you allow him to. And when you feel like going there, just remember the ninth. Jesus suffered, bled, and died and rose again to bring his people into harmonious relationship first with God and to each other. The ninth hour ought to remind us of that. Whenever you want to go there, just think about the ninth hour. We, we dare not as a church, we dare not as born-again believers in Jesus the Christ. We dare not as people who come to worship Sunday after Sunday and hear the word and sing Zion songs. We dare not allow wicked people with wicked motives and wicked intentions to keep us apart. Enjoy your family and friends of different races. Enjoy your co-workers of different races. Enjoy your neighbors and 
and, and enjoy your classmates of different nationalities. Let the haters hate. God will handle them. But as a church, we are to enjoy the fellowship of kindred minds and hearts united under the banner of Jesus Christ as one. So it was the angel told Cornelius that his prayers and giving to the poor had reached all the way to heaven and were to God like a sweet fragrance of Hebrew burnt offering. And then the angel instructed Cornelius to send men to Joppa, which was about 30 miles away, locate Peter, who was lodging with a tanner named Simon. Can I tell you something? God was already working in Peter's life. Because for the mere fact that he was in the house of a tanner, a tanner was one who handled dead animal skins. Jews would have nothing to do with tanners. They were unclean. But yet God had moved on Peter's heart, and he was in the house of a tanner. How amazing is that? How amazing it is for us at the Good Hope Church to have a, 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 a one time and avowed racist classman as a member of our church. Not only that, on the pastoral staff, he and his wife, loving members of our congregation. How amazing is that, y'all? I'm telling you, God was at work and he's still at work. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. You, you, you may watch conservative news. You might watch liberal news. But don't miss what God is doing. You, 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 you hear negative news all the time. And you hear comments all the time. But go back to the ninth hour. Don't miss what God is doing. Located. Just 30 miles away, Peter was lodging with a tanner named Simon, whose house would buy the sea. Peter would tell you. Peter, he said, will tell you what you must do. So it was without hesitation and deliberation, Cornelius moved to activation. Don't you love that? And in verse 7, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier and explained to them what had happened, what he had heard, and then he sent them to Joppa in order to find Peter. He said, go there, find Peter, and have him come back to us. Peter has a word. Peter has a word. Peter has a word from the Lord. Go get him and bring him back. Now, at the same time, at the same time, Cornelius' men were closing in on the city. Y'all, God was still working. For Peter was up on the housetop. He was up there praying. It was six hours around noontime. And while Peter was praying, he became hungry. The, the symbolism of noontime, what Luke is trying to tell us is that Peter was hungry. It was lunchtime, but yet he was up there praying. And while he was praying, he became very hungry and wanted to eat. And that's right where God wanted him. Because he had to be hungry. For what God had to say, and he had to know the symbolism that God was getting ready to present to him. 
he became very hungry and he wanted to eat. And, but while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Falling into a trance means that although Peter was awake, his mind was drawn away from all surrounding distractions and focused completely on God. In other words, God supernaturally captured Peter's undivided attention in order to give Peter a visual and a verbal lesson. In other words, he's preparing Peter to preach this thing to Cornelius. Notice in verses 11 and 12, the visual lesson. Visual, visual that Peter obviously was a visual learner. The visual lesson, the text reads, watch this, and he saw, that's visual, y'all, he saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at four corners descended to him and let down to the earth. God used this symbolism of, of food. Peter was hungry. So, so he's dealing with him from, from, a, from, from, a, from a food standpoint, a natural standpoint, to convey unto him a spiritual message. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and birds of the air. Now, mind you, this is what Peter saw. He saw an object like a great sheep bound at four corners, which represented the four corners of the world. He saw all kinds, get this, underscore in your Bibles, all kinds of animals representing, don't miss this, the wide assortment, the wide variety of humanity created by God and in the image of God. That's what he saw. The very sight of such must have astonished Peter. So in order to bring more clarity to the matter, God accompanied Peter's visual lesson with a verbal lesson. Verse 13 states, and a voice, that's verbal, y'all, and a voice came to him, Peter, rise Peter, kill and eat. The voice commanded Peter to slay and all allegiance to the dietary laws of which he had practiced since his youth and to satisfy his hunger with a diversity of meats once previously seen as unkosher or unclean. Now, I like how commentator J.B. Phillips describes Peter's reaction to the, to the scene. Phillips wrote, it seemed to him, meaning Peter, with all his Jewish prejudices, more like a nightmare than a revelation from God. He recalled in horror from the very thought, scandalized by the unholy mixture of animals set before him. So what did Peter do? He blurted out in verse 14, not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. He saw it, he heard it, but he said, not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything uncommon or unclean. I have never eaten anything uncommon or unclean, he said. Verse 16 reveals this was done three times. 
and the object was taken up. There's a story about a young Christian facing the choice of obeying God's call to go to the mission field or continue in a rewarding and comfortable business position. He consulted with a seasoned missionary who had been on the field for a long time, explaining clearly that God had called him, and yet how hard it was for him to make the choice to go. The veteran missionary opened his Bible at this very passage we're preaching today to verse 14 and poured out to this young man's Peter's words, quote, not so, Lord, End quote. And then he said, you cannot say that. The old missionary explained, you cannot say that. Either it is not so or it is Lord. Are you tracking with me? Say, you know, either it's not so or it's Lord. The two words put together are a contradiction in terms. Tell you what you do. Tell you what you do. This is, this is always a challenge to us, regardless of what the situation is. He said, tell, tell you what you do. He said, take my Bible and this pencil. Sit down here. And pray about it. Then cross out one of the expressions. Cross out the words, not so, and leave the word Lord. Or cross out the word Lord and leave the words, not so. He said you can't have it both ways. (laughs) That that applies to racism or, or whatever else we're doing that's contrary to the will of God. It's got to be one way or the other. It's either not so, Lord. I hear what you're telling me. I know you're telling me what I'm doing is wrong. It's either not so, Lord. It's either not so or it's either Lord. I follow you. Now, Peter had to make a decision. He had to decide whether to leave his racist, separatist, bigoted past behind and go with Jesus or he had to leave Jesus and go with his racist, separatist, bigoted past. I thank God is still calling folk today. No matter what church we're in, we got to make a decision. Well, I'm happy to report, I'm glad to report that Peter made the right choice. For we see clearly in verse 24 that he went to the home of Cornelius, the Gentile. And in the midst of Cornelius, his Gentile family and his friends, Peter said in verse 28, you know. And you know, you know, Cornelius, how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with. Go to one of another nation. 21st century interpretation. interpretation. Cornelius, I ain't even supposed to be here. I'm not even supposed to be up in here with you. 
I can imagine going on in Peter's mind to some degree, what if? What if? What if my family knew I was here? What if the other brethren back in Jerusalem knew I was here? Have, have, has anybody ever experienced that? What if they knew? What if they knew that my best army buddy was white? What if they knew if my best co-worker was black? What would they say? What, what, what would they say? Would, would they ostracize me? Would I become the brunt of, of joke? Would I be called a lover of one of them? All right. All right. What would they say? Peter said to his credit, irregardless of what they say, Irregardless of what they think, irregardless of how they feel, irregardless of the press, but God. I'm going to tell y'all something. That's all that matters to me now. And Lord, spare my life. I'll be 62 years old in a couple of days, but God. That's all that matters to me. I'm not concerned about what people say about the color of my friends. The only thing that matters to me now is but God has shown me that I should not call any man unclean. Notice right here in verse 28 as I close. The walls are racism. We're beginning to crash. That's right. That's right. The walls of racism were beginning to crumble and tumble down. Right here in verse 28, God was tearing down walls and building bridges. Right here in verse 28, Jew and Gentile were about to come together under the auspices of Jesus Christ. Right here in verse 28, y'all, it is, it is our challenge. To let the world know by our lips and our, our lives, by our witness and our works, by our testimony and our track record, that we will not succumb to racist plots, plans, programs, and projects. We as people of God will not become bitter, brash, and brutal, but we will lift up the name of Jesus. That's what we did at Christ's clothing cake yesterday. Blacks and whites together lifting up the name of Jesus. We will lift him up as our great liberator. We will lift him up as our great way maker. We will lift him up as the one who died for all mankind, died for all humankind. We will lift him up. So stand up, y'all. Don't be ashamed. Stand up, y'all. Don't be worried. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead. To every foe, every racist, every bigot, every hater is conquered. 